the largest print that I've created is a print that is nine meters wide by 500 meters long. Print friends, and welcome to the 51st episode of Pine Copper Live, the internet's number one printmaking podcast. I'm your host, Miranda Metcalf. I release weekly podcasts with people in the print world who are doing something a bit beyond the expected. So please subscribe on your podcast listening app of choice. You can also find Pine Copper Lime on Instagram and Facebook. And you can sign up for our monthly newsletter with print news from around the world, all at pinecopperlime.com. We also have a Patreon page, where, if you like PCL and you want to toss a few bucks our way each month, it makes a world of difference to us. There's also some nice little thank yous as well, like stickers and buttons and just good vibes. Finally, we have a sweet little print gallery as well. If you're looking for something new for your walls during this season of a lot of time indoors. Pine Copper Rhyme is running a fundraiser in collaboration with Speedball Art to help raise money to save Doc's Thrash House in Philadelphia. To learn more about Doc's and his contributions to printmaking and why it's so important to preserve his legacy, see last week's episode. As for the fundraiser, for anyone who donates 50 or more to the project, they will be entered into a drawing for an incredible collection of speedball products. Carborundum gel, a 4-inch brayer, an Akua printing plate, Akua intaglio ink in carbon back, and the rustic and regulator set, which includes one of each of the eight new print posse inks. To enter, just send a screenshot of your donation of 50 or more to the Doc's Thrash House at their Instagram page for your chance to win. Your last day to do this is July 25th, so shake a tail feather. And, as always, there's a link in the show notes to all of this. Printmaking forever, shun the non-believers. My guest this week is Brian Robinson a Torres Strait Islander printmaker who currently lives and works in Cannes, Queensland. We talk about his practice of interweaving images of pop culture with traditional carving motifs, how his relief prints influence his sculptural practice, and using a lino cut to create the parade track for the 2017 Commonwealth Games. So, without further ado, sit back, relax, and prepare to think big with Brian Robinson. Hi, Brian. How's it going? Yeah, I'm very well, thank you. What about yourself? I'm doing pretty well, pretty well. A little bit cold in Canberra, but, you know, other than that, I can't complain too much, I have to say. So I really got familiar with your work and met you at the Print Triennial in Mildura, I guess, last year, two years ago now? Um, yeah, I, yeah, yeah. I'd only been in Australia for a couple of months and I had this really great timing 
to be here during this event, which really is quite a nice to do um, that the Art Vault puts on, you know, every three years with uh, talks and exhibitions. And you were in an exhibition that I believe Michael Kempson curated and you gave a great talk about your work. And so, yeah, you'd kind of been on my radar ever since then to have on the podcast, but I've finally got my act together to reach out to you. And so now... <laughs> you finally me down. I around the country. Exactly, exactly. I had to actually, yeah, I had to get you through the art vault. So, um, but I found you. And I'm just excited to get to know more about your work and share your work with the people who listen to the podcast. And yeah, before we dive into some questions, would you mind introducing yourself a little bit for people who don't know you? And just letting people know who you are and where you're located and what you do. Okay, Dave, no worries. Um, well, firstly, my name's Brian Robinson. I'm um, I'm an, an Indigenous artist with heritage to both the Torres Strait Islands, sort of a, a small group of islands situated between um, Cape York um, Peninsula and the southern coast of um, Papua New Guinea, as well as having um, Aboriginal um Heritage, which is the um, Wutati tribe on the eastern side of Cape York Peninsula, a place at um, Shelburne Bay, as well as a whole host of other you know, sort of mixed bloods that, that run through mm-hmm. the family lineage as well, from you know sort of Scottish to to Philippine to Malay, um, a bit of yeah, bit of uh, worldly you know sort of blood. Mm-hmm. Flows, flows through the veins. Mm-hmm. Um, I've been printmaking, I suppose, since. The early 90s, I think about 92, was uh, was the first time that I, you know, yeah, picked up the, the good old lino cutting, you know, sort of blades and gouging away at, you know, various um, surfaces to, to make prints. Yeah. It's continued on. Um, the prints have, I suppose, gone, you know, bigger and bigger. As, yeah. As <laughs> on as well. So, yeah, yeah, but... Um, it's been now, I suppose, you know, sort of ten plus years as a as a full time in a full time arts um, career. Prior to that, I spent um, fourteen years working as a curator, exhibitions manager, and you know, sort of deputy director at the the Cairns Regional Gallery. So you know, sort of bringing in that you know sort of curatorial aspect to to my practice as well. Mm-hmm. So yeah, that's pretty much me in a you know sort of a, a nutshell. And then, so in terms of your background, where did you grow up and what role did art play in that time in your life? Um, well, I grew up on a small island called Wyburn. Um, that Wyburn is its traditional name. Um, English name is Thursday Island, actually. Hmm. Um, so a small island up in the uh, up in the Torres Straits. And I suppose art has always surrounded, you know, my, my sort of life. It's it hung on the walls. It, you know, was was stacked in in corners. And I'm not talking, you know, your your, your traditional, you know, sort of painting and drawing sort of art forms. These these were, you know, sort of little wooden sculptures, um, uh, little model purling luggers, um, canoes, and you, mm. you know, that, that sort of paraphernalia that is in uh, most households um, throughout the Torres Strait, actually. So I grew up, you know, sort of surrounded by a lot of this material. But, you know, I always say that I was born with a pencil in my hand. Mm. Um, so I was quite creative right from, you know, sort of day one. 
um, I'd get my hands on, you know, a bit of often paper, but, you know, not, not always paper, but as soon as I got, you know, sort of a pencil in hand, I'd, uh, I'd start scribbling on, you know, this, that and the other. And so there was no sort of surface, I suppose, that was really or left untouched by, uh-huh. <laughs> you know, sort of endeavour over the years. Much to, yeah, the, the horror of, you know, my, my parents as well. <laughs> Clean up after me, you know, through through making all that mess. <laughs> it's like, yeah, it's so just crazy. like, just a, it sounds like a, a born maker, a born drawer. So did you know then that, you know, you wanted to pursue art and go to art school like how did uh how did you how did you channel that as you got older um well I suppose you know sort of growing up in an island and with with my mother you know sort of working all the time it it left a lot of time you know sort of for for the kids to to explore Mm. both you know the 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 rest of the family and you know sort of connect with with that but also, um, you know, explore some of the skills that you started to, you know, sort of develop as a child. And drawing for me was, was one of those. So I spent many an hour um, mm. sitting either at the, you know, sort of um, the, the kitchen table drawing from, from you know, sort of imagination or other books around the house or sitting down with, you know, the sketch pad out in the environment or on one of the hills up on, you know, up on the island, you know, sort of sketching from, uh, from nature and just, just sort of, yeah, going, going from there really. And so, yeah, I've always, yeah, wanted to pursue um, a, a career in the, um, in the arts field and I've managed to, I suppose, you know, sort of pursue, you know, a, a couple of careers that, that sort of branch out into, you know, that sort of creative industry mm. one which was, you know, yeah, both as a as a practicing artist now, plus also, you know, yeah, the uh, development of you know sort of exhibitions and that that sort of curatorial side of the uh, of the industry as well. So, never been a dull moment. Yeah, I think that's what a lot of us in the arts are here for. Really, is just that's the life that we want is is uh, just not being bored and uh, and constantly, <laughs> yeah. Constantly keeps yeah, you on yeah. your toes, this art life. That's right, that's right. And, uh, unfortunately, I get bored really quickly. <laughs> so I've got um, many projects happening, you know, simultaneously at, at, at any one point in time. Yeah, yeah. Right now I've got um, a couple of uh, public art proposals that we're sort of developing. Um, I've got another public art piece being um, fabricated, almost almost finished actually, ready mm. for install down uh, down in Melbourne. There's oh probably about ten lino cuts on the go as well. A couple of drawings, you know, uh, a few sculptures. <laughs> just a couple of things, yeah. Just a couple of things, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, definitely. Yeah, I I definitely have questions for you um, about your sculpture and then uh, like particularly too about like the public installations as well and kind of all how that fits in. But before we get to that, can you tell me how you came to printmaking? How did you find lino and relief and have it become such a, a part of your practice? I recall the first time I ever picked up a piece of lino. I was, I think I was in like um, grade nine. So I was, you know, sort of about 14 or something like that. 
Mm -hmm. So in our, in you know sort of art um, art class, we were all you know sort of given these crumbly old you know sort of brown blocks of lino, and was you know sort of told to to draw a bit of an image and start to carve it out. I couldn't wait to to you know to bend my piece because I it was it, it was real terrible it was really terrible. <laughs> <laughs> was my first, you know, introduction into printmaking. Yeah. Um, but prior to that, you know, yeah, I could, you know, I could carve quite well, um, you know, sort of do reduction carving, you know, small turtles and dugongs, you know, various mm-hmm. sort of animals and stuff. Um, but it wasn't until I got to art college that I started to pick up the, the medium again. Um, and it was one of the you know, those um, first lessons, you know, <laughs> as a as a first year uh, intake. And oh yeah, admitted, you know, sort of sort of fell in love with it, and can have, have continued with that um, ever ever since. Yeah. So it's, it's a natural um, progression, I suppose, um, from carving. So you know, instead of you know, reduction carving, three-dimensional carving, you're looking at, you know, just sort of relief carving. So very, very minimal, you know, sort of carving sort of practice. So it's, yeah, it's a skill that, you know, has been honed, I suppose, since I was um, I was a child, you know, sort of carving away with Stanley knives and mm. chisels and, you know, sandpaper and all those sort of, yeah, wonderful um, materials. Right, right, because there are carving traditions within the Torres Strait Islanders cultures, right? And is that sort of like how you were introduced to it, that it was just part of that life? Because you were saying when you grew up, you had, you know, all these carved objects in the house. Yeah, yeah well, that, that's right. That's right. And yeah, I did grow up, you know, sort of surrounded by all of this, you know, yeah. all of the pieces. Uh, there, there was, you know, a number of um, masks um, that would, you know, sort of sit around the house that had, you know, sort of very minimal line work you know sort of carving Mm -hmm. and it's it's really just you know sort of an extension of that tradition I suppose um but instead of you know sort of carving into wooden masks and you know sort of turtle shell masks and things like that to create that sort of pattern it's now carved into you know sort of flooring vinyl and Mm. uh, and sort of silk cut lino and you know sort of run through a press with ink so it's been there you know, yeah, my family, yeah, for, for a long time. And so when you go about constructing your images, because sometimes those you've, you've touched on before, they are, can be quite large scale for your, your lino cuts. Do you draw everything out first um, and carve away what you don't want to print? Or are you actually sort of using that chisel, gouge, you know, carving knife, whatever you're using as the drawing tool? Um, well, I will draw the the main you know sort of figures so I'll roughly compose the block first mm-hmm. drawing you know sort of the main and I do a lot of you know sort of yeah human you know sort of figurative work I have done you know sort of over the last probably 10 15 years or so so it's it's you know sort of drawing out a you know a number of those main elements first and then after that you know it, it's then it's then a, a very linear based i suppose you know sort of approach to to the lino cut really so mm-hmm. it's carved all the line work and once all of that is done it's then um incorporating um traditional patterning to to the print so the the pattern up in the Torres Straits um that we carve is a pattern called minar 
So Minar in Torres Strait language means um, design or pattern, so one pattern. Um, mineral, which is um, a, a pluralized version of that, so it's it's sort of a, a string of patterns. Um, but then once you start to compose all of those strings of patterns together, this you know sort of swirling um, optical you know sort of effect across the uh, across the block, and it's then uh, a term called kaidaral, and kaidaral actually means the the spirit that creates the ripples on the surface of the water. Mm. So it talks about you know. Um, an ancient, you know, sort of carving practice, I suppose, that has always been grounded, you know, by by a culture that is um, surrounded by sea and, you know, sort of its interaction with the, with the sea. And then in terms of your, you know, your imagery, you'll have this, like the traditional patterning, and then you'll see often mix it with like Western or colonial images, and then also pop culture. Like you might see... A little Atari aliens or a Darth Vader mask or a turtle, like a, a, a ninja turtle or something appear in your work. I'd love <laughs> which is just it's just and and they're all mixed together in like the really sort of most most beautiful, almost natural ways. Like the, you're taking all of these images that I think are often associated as being in very different parts of our brain, and the way you compose them, they really tell a, a narrative and speak to one another. And so I just, I guess I just love to, to hear sort of from you, your process when you're, you're choosing your images and how the images interact and whether it's again, like pop culture or um, the ceiling of the Sistine Chapel, like kind of, or a flying machine by Da Vinci and all kind of coming together. How does that work for you? Um, and when you're creating that story and that narrative and deciding to create an image? I suppose the, the prints are essentially, you know, a universe where symbols, you know, traditional symbols and, you know, sort of Western iconography and uh, art history all sort of mingle together on the one, you know, on the, on the one sort of plane. And I suppose as, as a child, you know, just like any child growing up, you know, sort of anywhere really, I was still heavily influenced by, um, by television, you know, sort of cartoons on, you know, sort of Saturday mornings and, and you know, that, that sort of, yeah, that sort of idea of, you know, sort of childhood. And it, it's something that, you know, I've always, that I've continued to drag through uh, my practice and, you know, my my thoughts i suppose of that that connection with you know the 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 world of comics of cartoons and in the in that sort of genre the, the cartoons themselves have just you know gone a little bit you know it's sort of bizarre sometimes so I'll, you know sort of yeah the the good old standard you know sort of mickey mouse and through to, you know, Japanese manga and anime and, you know, and all of those sort of influences as well. So it's it's a bit of bit of everything, I suppose, from cultures all around the world, really. One in particular that I'm thinking about, and I don't have it in front of me, so I'm, I'm sorry, you might have to, to help me through it a little bit, but it looks, it's an image of, you know, a Western explorer and he has a map in front of him and it looks, you know, very very colonial he's got that british hat and wig and then in the background you've got 
the space invaders. <laughs> and, and so, you know, you put it sort of like, again, in like that, that context of, of your work where you've got like this thing that immediately puts this like almost this, this idea in our heads, of course, of invaders and this like light, almost comical kind of Atari style right up against, you know, the atrocity of colonial invasion in Torres Strait Islanders, but, you know, truly anywhere that the colonizers showed up. But yeah, it's, uh, I just think that's such like a, a, a wonderful kind of dark humor. That's the one that comes to mind really particularly when I'm thinking about like this mix of history and pop culture. Well, that that, um, that work is um, is actually on display down in Canberra at the moment. Oh, really? <laughs> the, uh, National Museum of Australia in um in one of their um, large Endeavour 250 um, exhibitions. So, you know, looks at the, the dates when, you know, sort of, yeah, Captain Cook came sailing over the over the waters to uh, to the continent of Australia. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I suppose, you know, to, to reinforce that, that concept of that, you know, sort of outside force, um, you know, sort of in, in invading, um, you know, other territories, um, that that was you know so that was the reason behind you know the the introduction of the of the space invaders at you know yeah really you know sort of visually set in motion you know that that sort of idea and that that sort of concept for the for the work, but in a light and you know sort of humorous way it's not it doesn't you know sort of smack you you know really hard in the face about you know that that sort of concept of. Um, of invasion of you know sort of terra nullius you know sort mm-hmm. of and void of void of people um it, it's sort of yeah it's it's more on the the light you know sort of heartedness you know sort of side the the more humorous um you know sort of whimsical look at you know that that sort of contact period i suppose um mm-hmm. for the country and you know the the good old space invader i suppose is, has been used in a number of works recently that look at you know not just that that invasion by you know that that sort of alien force but um also when i start to you know sort of compose box blocks about you know sort of cosmology and astrology and all of those you know sort of wonderful things that happen up in the night sky that you know sort of influence weather patterns and seasons you know sort of general general culture back on earth as well so yeah, the good old space invader makes an appearance in in a works actually. It's 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 a period, you know. It came out in you know sort of the the seventies and eighties, you know, period when I was you know was a youngster, playing you know sort of video games down at the local shop. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so it brings up you know again you know sort of yeah bringing back in you know those sort of childhood memories, yeah into into the works. So using you know sort of little characters um, such as that you know sort of speak to you know all sorts of, you know, sort of ages, you know, both genders, black, white, you know, you, you name it, you know, everyone, yeah, sort of connects with um, a lot of the works that I create. That's such a good point that the thing about, like, elements of pop culture, like the Space Invaders, is that it it is something that tends to work as as relatively similar shorthand for almost anyone in the world. And I think even for younger generations who maybe didn't play it I definitely grew up playing it and I can you know I see that and I can hear the beep, boop, 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 beep, 
you know, like it has still has this really like I have a very, a very clear sort of memory of that and from childhood. But I think even for for the kids these days, they still know that like that image of that, those early eight bit figures is something that has really penetrated through generations and still exists as really effective iconography um, that, again, you know, has a certain universal language for people. That's right. That's right. And, you know, that, that sort of pixeled form as well, that little, you know, sort of geometric object is now, you know, it's, it's translated from, you know, that good old, you know, sort of static, flat, you know, sort of space invader into, you know, sort of Minecraft blocks. And so mm-hmm. it's like the block form is, is still present today. And, you know, is, yeah, is used to build, you know, a lot of, you know, I suppose, you know, sort of gaming platforms and, and, and stuff like that. So, yeah, it's come, the aesthetic has, has stayed with us and, and now in the three-dimensional way with the Minecraft. Yeah, yeah, that's right. That's right. I'm always want to ask artists that I chat with when they have a really, really developed aesthetic like you do, um, you know, so in the sense, it's just like you have a really clear voice and the way you create your works that it translates from the lino cuts to your sculptures to the installations and i know that one of the main questions i get from younger artists who listen to this podcast is how do i find my voice like how do i develop it and so i don't know if you have any words of wisdom for people who are just (laughs) starting out in this world and they want to find a voice that's theirs that they can use to tell their stories and and that feels really sort of true to them, but also really distinctive uh, as well. How did like how did you come to sort of find your aesthetic and maybe other people can take take some story from that that would help them? Well, I you know sort of first and foremost, I think you need to have a. Uh a weird and wonderful imagination <laughs> that you can draw draw upon. And, you know, not, not only that, but, you know, I, I draw heavily upon, you know, my sort of Indigenous culture as well, that, that sort of heritage that has a whole mass of, you know, ancestral tales that that can be, you know, sort of interwoven into, you know, the, the contemporary works that I, um, that I create. And so, you know, I think I'm in, you know, a bit of a, a new, unique sort of situation where there's a number of, you know, sort of different universes, I suppose, that oh, I can sort of um, play with um, mm-hmm. in terms of, you know, composing, composing works. There, there is um, thing, a bit of a, a motto that I follow, you know, sort of with my practice and, you know, um, within my um, studio spaces um, and, yeah, you know, I suppose you know, sort of irony would have it. It actually comes from uh, from a, a Walt Disney cartoon, and the the cartoon is actually called Meet the Robinsons. And so you know, it goes um, around here. We don't look backwards for too long. We keep moving forward, doing new things and opening up new doors because we're curious, and curiosity keeps leading us down new paths. Keep moving forward. So you know, it's about you know, sort of looking for you know, those little moments of inspiration, you know, sort of throughout your life and, you know, sort of building on that, on that, you know, sort of idea and not being, not being afraid to pursue those ideas that you do get. 
you have to go where your practice, where your creativity is taking you and not kind of being afraid of that, just sort of like trusting the process and being willing to just see what comes out the other end. I think that that is, yeah, really, really significant and something that can be hard as a young artist to develop that trust muscle, I think, for sure. Yeah, that that's right. That's right. And, you know, there's, there's, you know, sort of inspiration that, you know, sort of surrounds us um, all, you know, whether that's, you know, a, a visual, you know, sort of stimulus um, that you see from, you know, sort of the the environment or whether that's found in a book. That sort of inspiration also comes from other, you know, sort of members of your of your family, of your extended, you know, sort of peer group. My, my children, um, you know, give me a lot of inspiration as well, um, not only through the the use of their toys that I put into into works and into you know sculptures and prints and things like that, but just their just their general you know sort of chaos and questioning you know, this that and the other and that that sort of energy and vibe that they that they have as well. So you know it's about you know sort of drawing upon all of those all of that religion experience as well and you know trying to trying to use that as you know sort of a a bit of a driving force for for the practice as well so yeah it's it's pretty remarkable how the kid brain just works in such I love how you said like the chaos of it because that's that's it's just that it it works in a way that's just so different from adult brains Um, and it can be really inspirational just to see the kind of rubbery thinking that they can have about things um and like the kid <laughs> logic is really truly its own kind of logic and yeah it's it's definitely definitely inspirational i've got i don't i don't have children myself but um i've got good friends that have a, a i guess they're 11 and, and an eight-year-old who i see quite a bit and you know just the some of the things that they say the way they apply their logic to things i just feel like i should constantly be writing it down um <laughs> because i'm just like this is incredible like how did that even like come out of <laughs> your like of your brain yeah yeah i'm just a big kid <laughs> you know it's easy for me i suppose to compose and you know sort of think about um the the works that i do create Oh, I've still got that rubbery brain, like, you know, like you sort of referred to. Um, (laughs) It was hell. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) So, yeah, so speaking of the different media in which you work, I know that you've said in other interviews that your sculptural work really comes from the drawing and the printmaking practice. And I'm wondering if you can talk sort of directly to how printmakings maybe influence some of the paper sculpture work. And again, if I can, you know, pick your brain for words of wisdom here, for printmakers who just are kind of interested in making that jump from the two-dimensional to the three-dimensional, um, what was that process like? And do you have any advice for them? Um, well, I suppose, you know, I, I used to, I first started off by, getting, you know, a wonderfully nice printed piece and pulling out the standing knife and just, you know, hacking the hell out. <laughs> <laughs> um, often, you know, sometimes I would just cut certain aspects 
um, of of the paper and then start to just you know sort of roll roll those little aspects of of the paper so the paper is still you know sort of attached to the print um, and you you're just you know sort of manipulating the the surface I suppose of that print by um, by folding and you know sort of rolling these little aspects on it and other times oh, I'd completely cut up you know the the entire print and use that print as as a skin, I suppose, on um, on other sculptural forms that that I made, um, and it's it's sort of gone, yeah, gone from there, really. Mm. Sometimes it, it's very, um, it, it's done, you know, deliberately. It's done, it's done with purpose that I, you know, sort of will carve a block, knowing that you know this this section here of the of the of the block, I'll actually cut out mm. to expose, you know, either. Um, the either you know sort of a, a ground under that or use the, the actual cutout section and you know sort of use that to be you know sort of adhered somewhere else on the on the print um and then other times it'll you know it'll it'll just be sort of random and so there, there's no there's no sort of method to to the madness really it's just me experimenting initially with manipulating that that two-dimensional print that you know two-dimensional artwork and trying to pull it into that that three-dimensional sort of space really so there was there was a really large you know sort of it was more probably an installation um that i created back in when was that sort of 2012 2013 i think it was um a piece called up in the heavens the gods contemplate their next move um secret charms are given to man so this this piece here was actually a, a combination of both lino cut plus a, a sort of sculptured frieze that you know sort of sat in connection with the with the lino cut print. So the lino cut itself, um, the entire work actually was is about you know sort of four meters by about four meters, um, and the the sculptural section had you know sort of a depth of about. Um, 40 to 50 sort of centimetres, but it was basically cut up into, you know, sort of six sections. So four sections were um, were four large lino cut prints, and then the other two sections was that uh, was that sculptured sort of frieze. So it's it was looking at, I suppose, uh, the combination really of of that sort of idea of, you know, sort of pulling the print into into that sort of sculptural realm. And this, this, you know, the the image that I um, chose to compose on that um, into that piece was um, the creation of Adam from the uh, from the Sistine Chapel fresco. So it's the the part where you know you've got the the joining or the almost joining of the of the two fingers in that you know creation Adam creation of Adam sort of scenario. So most of the, the the block itself, most of the work was you know these four large lino cut um, prints that had these um, naked you know sort of male figures in the work, and then having that that sort of sculptured section as well that also had a number of other figures um, placed into that work as well, just to build that whole sort of narrative. Um, and so I've worked on a, you know, a number of other pieces um, recently that connect with that you know sort of two and three dimensional crossover I suppose. When you're talking about you know moving even larger because the the public installations I've seen from you they're these 
freestanding sculptures, um, you know, again, quite large scale. And they do have, you know, that that very they're full of like movement in their composition. You know, they have that kind of swirling patterning effect as well. And I'm just sort of curious, you know, when you're doing that, you must you have to work with like engineers and town planners and people who I think oftentimes people don't think of as professions that are typically thought to be part of the arts. And I'm wondering in terms of when you're working with them, do you does you find that you sort of learn things or does it influence your art practice at all? Kind of seeing that other side of things because printmaking, I feel like, is such uh, a process-based medium and has a lot of logistics in it that some people get really, you know, really, really into. And in a way, you know, you get a bit of engineering and chemistry and organization and all of that within printmaking as well. And I'm wondering if if you find all of that as part of the creative process or is it just kind of um, more just logistics for you? Probably, probably a bit of both, I would say. Yeah, yeah. When you know, sort of when I first started out, you know, sort of in in the public art realm, and the the public art sculpture, I suppose, is really just an extension of my of my sculptural practice. Um, in that, you know, sort of desire to get some um, to to go bigger, really, and mm-hmm. and you know, a public space for everyone to you know, sort of view and you know, sort of comment upon. So it's this sort of yes gone down gone down that that path really but i suppose you know when i first started out in that in that realm you know sort of dealing with architects and engineers and like you say you know sort of all of those different um authority town planning you know sort of authority mm-hmm. that, that you need to interact with there's a there's a, a general um you know sort of vocab you know there's a general lingo that you know sort of all of those other trades sort of speak and so I've managed to you know sort of teach myself I suppose you know a lot of a lot of the jargon that's that's been used and it really helps with you know the the public art practice that um that I've built since since you know sort of the the late 90s really um I've been yeah sort of doing um public art sculpture and so you know, yeah, like like you say, you know, there there is a, a lot of process involved in you know the development of each and every you know sort of individual print. But again, you know, that that's very similar to you know uh, the the processes that you need to go through as well when you're looking at placing you know a, a sculptural form in a civic you know sort of area. So there is. Um, you know, sort of a lot of engineering aspects, you know, sort of looking at uh, weight loading and um, how structures will stand up and, you know, all of those, you know, sort of internal mechanisms that, you know, are required for for large sculptural works. Um, There's, you know, sort of public safety and, you know, that sort of, you know, sort of aspect that you you need to consider. There's, you know... um, the, just the the general environment that the works are placed in, whether you know the the works themselves will will heat up too much that you know the public can't actually interact with with the sculpture. So it's it's looking at not only design but you know sort of materiality, um, structure, a whole host of you know yeah other bits and pieces. You know often you know public art um, sculptures in, in particular are seen as you know sort of wayfinding objects. 
So, you know, you need to, yeah, sort of factor in those aspects as well. As I say, it wouldn't occur to me, but of course, yeah, in Australia, you can't make something that would get too hot. (laughs) (laughs) You're going to like like roast, you know, roast someone who touches it. That's so, yeah, because when I worked in the in the public arts a little bit, I was in, you know, Washington State, where it it doesn't really get much above 20 at any point, you know, throughout the year. So it's not something you worry about too much. But is that as does that just and this is just sort of now my own sort of curiosity. I know that a, a lot of the public work I've seen from you is very reflective, you know, it has a shine to it. Does that actually help it from absorbing too much heat in like the the height of a, a Queensland summer? <laughs> <laughs> um, no, the, the, the dispersal of heat, I suppose, really comes down to the, um, down to the, the metal, the, the top okay. of metal that you use. And whether that's, you know, uh, an aluminium alloy or, you know, a stainless steel or, you know, something like that. And it's, it's these, you know, sort of metals, you know, that, that type of material that you need to create within to, uh, for it to, you know, sort of withstand the, um, the environment, really, that the, the work is placed in. Because these sculptural forms need to sit out in, you know, out in the open for, you know, 25, 30 years plus. Mm-hmm. And they're there, you know, yeah, it's a stipulation of, you know, the proposal that of the pro- project that you that you enter into is, you know, having that, that sort of time frame for the sculpture to, to actually be there. But you know, sort of the the shine really, I suppose, you know, really comes down to the um the 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 paint, um the external paint surface that you use on the sculpture. And often we use you know quite a robust spray sort of paint um that's that's generally in you know sort of the the two pack automotive you know sort of spray paint range. So the 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 type of you know sort of yeah coloration that you'd get on you know sort of cars and stuff like that. Okay, yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, something else that's that was designed from the ground up to be outside in any weather for a long time. Yeah. Yeah, basically, yes. Yeah. So speaking of of sort of scale and logistics, to kind of to to circle back to printmaking a little bit. You've you're known for for doing quite large scale prints. So you mentioned in passing, I think one that was 4 meters by 4 meters. Is that the largest print you've ever done, or or what what is like what's the biggest print that you've you've created thus far? The largest print that I've created is a print that is nine meters wide hmm. by <laughs> five hundred meters long. Oh, only wait. <laughs> <laughs> um, so please tell me that story. Like where, where was this displayed? Like, how is it, how is it created? Um, please tell me about it. <laughs> you know, well, I, uh, I had the very fortunate, you know, yeah, sort of um, scenario happen where I was um, thing. I was invited by um, a company called Jack Morton worldwide to create the the athletes parade track at the um at the last commonwealth games which ah. was at the gold coast so you know the, they went searching on uh, on the net for you know looking at sort of imagery i suppose that they could use for um thing for the uh for the track um came across my work and you know just that that stark you know sort of black and white 
you know, sort of imagery um, plus the, the the characters and, you know, sort of motifs that I use within the work. And so they, you know, sort of got on the phone and um, asked um, whether, you know, I'd be interested in designing the, the, the track mm-hmm. for the opening ceremony of the Games. And, you know, that's something, you know, a project such as that, you know, comes around, you know, sort of once in a lifetime. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, yeah, I was more than happy to, you know, <laughs> yeah, produce a work that, yeah, that could be used for, for that, you know, sort of purpose. So it was the first time actually in um, in uh, the history of, you know, either the uh, the Commonwealth or the Olympic Games that the uh, that, that track design was actually given to an artist mm. to to create. So, you know, the the honor, yeah, was 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 really mine to, you know, yeah, create something that was, you know, sort of spectacular. Um, that was viewed by, you know, billions of people yeah. around as the opening ceremony uh, was sort of broadcast live live across the world. Oh, so it actually started off as um, as a lino cut print. Mm. Um, and the lino cut print, you know, that, that I actually physically carved was uh, a cylindrical, you know, sort of oh, elliptical, you know, sort of shape that was, um, was about six metres um, wide on the longest, you know, sort of diameter and probably about three and a half to four metres on the, you know, on the, on the shortest um, sort of yeah, diameter and was the, the physical lino um, cut that I carved was um, 25 centimetres um, uh, deep, but, you know, sort of making up that, that large, you know, sort of mm-hmm. circular track. Um, and so that, that design, that, that 25 centimetre width, was then blown up to to, to nine meters, um, nine meters wide. So, the the size of a um, a three car um, highway, <laughs> right? With then you know half a kilometer long. I just as you're as you're describing it, I, I just did a, a sneaky Google here, and it's beautiful. It's incredible, like seeing the the images of it, sort of looking down from. You know, the, like I'm sure they're they're uh, drone shots or something of like the the entire stadium. It's amazing. I'll definitely put a link to that so people uh, can can see what you're talking about as as uh, as this 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 undertaking. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So that that's the biggest one that I've you know sort of done today, and then it's probably you know the the biggest print ever done in the world. I know. I would be very, I'd be very surprised if there's anything that beats that. Yeah. <laughs> um, but my standard size block has become, is, you know, sort of a, a meter by almost two meters. So that, that's my standard size okay. block. Um, and it, it takes, probably takes about, you know, sort of 35 hours or, you know, sort of thereabouts to actually carve, compose and carve that, you know, sort of full block. But I work on that over, you know, sort of probably about um, two and a half to three weeks um, in amongst, you know, sort of, yeah, other, other works and, you know, sort of family life and all that sort of right. stuff. Yeah. But, yeah, that, that's sort of become my standard size. Um, and it, it's it's a good size that, you know, I can build a lot of, you know, sort of narrative into into the work as well. Um, you know, sort of stories that, you know, will start uh, as one main theme but have so many other, you know, sort of 
tangents that, you know, will, will lead people in and out of the work as well. I could definitely see that because you're, you use a, you know, it's quite a dense iconographic language in what you're doing and kind of the the more you look the more you can say oh like what what is that little guy there and what's this over here and so yeah you're working that big but you're you're filling the space you know you you really use every centimeter of it to tell the story yeah <laughs> <What to say. laughs> definitely definitely well beautiful well we're just sort of coming up on the end of our our recording time so i'm hoping uh before we sign off could you tell anyone out there listening th about any future projects that you have coming up that people can look for just anything in general you're looking forward to in the future well, um, I know it's kind of a funny time to be asking this because <laughs> the world is a little chaotic right now. So I've, as I've been doing interviews for the few people this week, I, they all kind of have that moment where they're like, uh, you mean besides all my exhibitions that were canceled? You know, like they do have kind of a, I have to take a moment. So this could be work related or even just, you know, I'm looking forward to the weather getting you know, a little warmer, whatever it is, you know? <laughs> well, you know, oh, I work in my studio, uh, rain, <laughs> all the shine, you know, yeah, weather doesn't, yeah, stop me from, from doing the, uh, from doing the arts practice. But yeah, like I mentioned before, you know, there's, there's a, a suspended uh, sculptural work that, that we're just finishing off mm -hmm. for uh, a place called um, the, the Nutterwadding Community Hub, um, which is um, just out of Melbourne. And that it's large um, feathers that you know, sort of each feather is probably about you know, sort of three and a half, four meters, sort of long. And they all they're they're not all straight; they all sort of wrap around each other, and you know, are suspended within this sort of um, community hub, you know, sort of void space. And those feathers themselves have a lot of you know, sort of printmaking um, pattern as you know, as a surface sort of detail on on the feather. Um, that, that's, you know, sort of one of the public art projects that, you know, will, will come to light um, very soon. Um, there's also another um, group exhibition that I'm working towards at the moment for um, Queensland um, University of Technology. And it's an exhibition that's focused on a small children's um, character um, by the name of M Miffy. And oh, Miffy yeah. Yeah, by um, Dick Dick Bruner, I mm -hmm. think was the uh, was the Dutch artist and you know sort of um, author of of that series of children's books. So the um, the institution is pulling together an exhibition of you know yeah works based on Miffy and it has invited um, I think six um, Australian artists to respond to to the to the rabbit. Um, and so I'm creating two works, one which is a, a sculptural based. Um, sort of installation showing Miffy and you know a bit of a garden sort of scene and then the other is um, a large lino cut print that also has Miffy you know, sort of center stage um, being surrounded by a whole host of other rabbits from across um, you know that that sort of cartoon movie you know sort of genre as well solo exhibitions you know that, that are pushing out into you know uh, I think out into 24, so 
2024. So mm-hmm. <laughs> a number of other projects, you know, I sort of slotted in between that time as well. There's a major um, uh, publication that we're um, that I'm developing with my agent over in Perth, Mossenson Galleries at the moment. So a publication that'll look at all the aspects of my arts practice, you know, sort of to date. So it'll pick up, you know, sort of on printmaking and public sculpture and sculpture and, you know, sort of design, maybe a bit of, you know, sort of curatorial, you know, sort of practice as well. And I suppose at the moment I've got a couple of exhibitions that um, that are over in the um, over in the states. One which is um, at the Australian Embassy in um, in Washington, DC, um, and the others over in um, over in Charlottesville at a place called Kluge-Roo, which is um, a large Aboriginal art gallery that's connected to the University of Virginia. Oh, beautiful. Yeah, I believe, like, I've heard of that, uh, of the gallery before. I've never had a chance to visit because I'm, I'm very much a, a West Coaster. I haven't spent much time on the East Coast, but yeah, that sounds really, really good. Is there a place where people can find you online if they want to, like, know more about your work or perhaps, like, purchase a lino cut from a gallery? Like, where can they follow you know more about you see your see your images okay there's um there are a couple of a couple of sites um the main ones being um mossenson galleries m-o-s-e-n-s-o-n galleries and they're based over in perth a little bit closer to home you've got um one space gallery in brisbane as well as um creative move who are my public art agents no, across those, yeah, across yeah. those, those sort of, yeah. Beautiful. You, you'll get a good, you know, sort of snapshot of, you know, um, what I've been up to and, you know, works that have been created in the past and stuff like that, so. Excellent. Well, I can definitely put links in the show notes to those so people can follow you and and learn more about your work beyond this little chat. And thank you so much for for taking the time to talk with me um it's really been it's really been a pleasure so thank you again and i'll let you know when we're going to be releasing the podcast sounds good sounds good and thank you for extending the invitation to you know sort of come onto your podcast today and have a you know a bit of a rant and rave about um about what i get up to on a daily <laughs> it's been really fun thank you so much brian i will be in touch no worries thank you very much bye now well, that's our show for this week. Join me again next week when my guest will be Karen Oremus. Karen worked for 15 years as an associate professor in the College of Arts and Creative Enterprises at Zayed University in the United Arab Emirates, where she was responsible for the establishment and development of the first printmaking studio and printmaking discipline in the nation's capital of Abu Dhabi. She's also an accomplished printmaker whose practice explores the unpredictability and fragility of life from both a universal and personal perspective. This is emphasized through her examination of the concept of physical and environmental decay brought about by the passage of time. You won't want to miss it. This episode, like all episodes, was written and produced by me, Miranda Metcalf, with editing help from Timothy Pauschak and music by Joshua Weber. I'll see you next week.